We're going to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And after much personal anticipation, we begin this morning an exposition through Matthew's gospel. Ever since I became a Christian, I've always had an affinity for Matthew. And perhaps it's because Matthew contains so much unparalleled teaching of Jesus, like the Sermon on the Mount. Or perhaps it's because Matthew has so much to say about the kingdom of heaven, which piques our interest. Or maybe it just boils down to first impressions. Matthew is the first gospel in the New Testament, the first gospel I read. And first impressions go a long way. Matthew has a fitting place as the first gospel, though. The order of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is not inspired. It's traditional. But the earliest church fathers all agreed that the order reflects the order in which these gospels were written. They're always presented in this order. I think Matthew being first, though, is providentially fitting because it's the perfect bridge between the Old and New Testaments. I hope you're here last week when we essentially established the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah. The, the hope of Israel and the nations funnel down to this one figure, the Messiah. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he's not coming out of the blue. He's coming in fulfillment of hundreds of prophecies given over a couple thousand years. And we need to see the continuity of Christ coming with all that God has said. And Matthew shows us that above all. Jesus, the Messiah, comes in fulfillment of the word of God. And this gospel, Matthew, is the perfect gateway between the world of promise in the Old Testament and the world of fulfillment in the New And it can be rightly said that without Matthew, your understanding of the Old Testament will be diminished, as will your understanding of the New. It really is a gateway. Now, speaking of the Gospel of Matthew, just by way of background, and for the sake of some of you who might be newer to the faith, I want to quickly share what it means to, to even call this a gospel. That phrase, or the term gospel, it's a buzzword we throw around a lot, but But it has meaning, euangelion, good news. It means the good news. And these New Testament books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're called gospels because primarily they they record a message of good news. And that good news all centers on the coming of this person, Jesus Christ. What's so good about the coming of Jesus? Well, that centers on who he is and what he did. And starting with the latter, the works of Jesus, his ministry alone was remarkable as working wonders, teaching the words of God, showing profound power. But you realize the miracles of Jesus were not the main attraction. They were just given to a test that he really came from God and spoke from God. Therefore, you better listen to him. But more importantly, what was the greatest work of Jesus? What's the greatest work he came to perform? And was his death, his death on the cross. The highlight of these four accounts of good news revolves around the death of the main character. I mean, just think about that. That's so backwards. All other religions mourn the death of their leader. But Christianity is based on the death of its leader. How can that be? Because his death wasn't defeat and loss. It was victory. And that's because on the cross, Jesus was not just dying. He was performing a work, an atonement for sins, a perfect substitute sacrifice. And to prove his work was finished and successful on the third day, he rose from the grave so that now those who turn to him can be saved. That way of salvation is open in Christ alone. Literally every other religion teaches you have to earn the way of salvation. You have to use your effort to, to gain this way of salvation. But, but biblical Christianity alone teaches that there's nothing you can do because of your sin, your effort will never be enough. But Jesus did the work for you. His work is enough. And God now promises that those who just repent of their sins and trust in this Savior will be saved, will pass from eternal death to eternal life. That is the good news. That's, that's very good news. And that's why these four gospel accounts of good news have, have to say so much about the death of Jesus. These gospels are not mere biographies of Jesus, like just telling us about his life. No, they're very purposeful accounts, mostly telling us about his death and resurrection. And that explains why these gospels spend a disproportionate amount of time on the last week of his life. Most biographies of of great people spend most of their time on the life and the accomplishments of a person. And there's like a, a passing reference to how the person died. 
But Matthew, Mark, and Luke spend some 40% of their account on the end of Christ's life. John spends some 60% of his gospel on the, the final week of Christ's life. And that's because the good news is found. It's wrapped up in this life-giving death of Jesus. Now, that said, these four Gospels do not exclusively focus on the death of Jesus. They do contain other material about his birth, his life. But even then, this is a selective record. It's purposeful. These accounts are given to show us who Jesus really is. I mentioned the coming of Jesus is good news because of who he is and what he did. What he did was die on the cross and rise from the dead to pay for our sins. But the only reason he was able to do that and succeed is because of who he is. And so the gospel writers also go to great lengths to show us that this Jesus of Nazareth was actually someone more. And that the true identity of Jesus is wrapped up in the good news. It's something you have to get right. And that's why having four gospels is so helpful. God has given us four not contradictory, but complementary perspectives on the person of Jesus. And you think back to, for example, the, the September 11th attacks in 2001. If you wanted to just think back historically now what it was like, would you rather talk to one witness or four witnesses? People who were there. Obviously, four. And don't you think it would be better if those four witnesses each viewed it from a different perspective? One person was there at ground zero. Someone else was at a nearby skyscraper. Third person was a local firefighter. And a fourth was a news reporter in a helicopter. They would each tell you the same event with the same storyline, but you'd get a little bit of a unique perspective from each of these witnesses. But that would only enrich your understanding of what it was really like on that day. What took place? Well, likewise, we have four gospel writers and they're telling us the same message, the same message of good news about the person and work of Christ. But they're writing from different perspectives that they're highlighting different things. And that just helps us get to know this Jesus better. So Mark, for example, presents Jesus as the suffering servant in the tradition of Isaiah. Like we read this morning, the one who's come to serve us. Luke presents Jesus as the son of man. He's like a second Adam come to stand in our place. John presents Jesus as the son of God. All of the gospels clearly show the deity of Christ, but John just goes extra to make sure we really know this Jesus was God incarnate. And that brings us back to Matthew. He presents Jesus as the sovereign king. From the very beginning, Matthew makes clear that this Jesus, he's the long-awaited Messiah, son of Abraham, son of David. He's the seed that was promised, this promised king who would be the one to finally usher in God's everlasting kingdom of peace and righteousness. And especially from a Jewish perspective, that the coming of this Messiah is very, very good news. It's worth writing a book about. He's the culmination of thousands of years of, of promise and hope. And that's, that's the unique, special perspective we get from Matthew's gospel. But we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. This morning, uh, my simple goal is just to introduce you to Matthew's gospel. I want you to see can Matthew at a glance up front today, because that's going to only enrich your understanding of this book. I want you to see God's divine purpose and and giving us this special account. And next week, we'll get into the actual text, chapter 1, verse 1, and, and then on from there, verse by verse. But, but for today, I just want to take you through an introduction to Matthew. You might better appreciate this account of the coming of the King in Christ Jesus. So let's start with, with first Matthew's author. Just a quick word on Matthew's author. The Gospel of Matthew itself technically comes to us Anonymously, nowhere does the author state who he is. But Matthew's name has been affixed to every ancient manuscript that we have. And the early church unanimously believed it was written by the apostle Matthew. 
And those who lived immediately after the apostles never questioned that Matthew wrote this gospel. There are no good reasons to believe otherwise. This, this was safely written by Matthew. And there's some internal evidence to support this. If you don't know, Matthew was a tax collector. It's not surprising then that the author of this book shows a, a high level of precision whenever he's talking about taxes and finance. For example, only Matthew mentions the two drachma tax. In addition, given the life of a tax collector, Matthew would have been well-versed in Greek and Aramaic. He would have already had experience as a record keeper. He would have already had writing materials, which is not to be taken for granted. You don't just go to the store and buy a paper and pen. The other disciples, think about it, they're all fishermen and, and uneducated tradesmen. But Matthew, actually, given his background, was, was probably the most natural candidate to be like their secretary. It would not be hard to envision Matthew being the one to keep a record of the words and works of Jesus. And granted, we have no documented evidence of this, but some scholars postulate that it may have been Matthew who kept a shorthand running record of the words and works of Jesus. Now, perhaps later, Mark and Luke, who were not among the twelve, perhaps used Matthew's notes written in Aramaic to help compile their own gospels. Matthew himself, though, was an apostle. He's one of the original 12 disciples. His name appears in each of the, the four rosters of the 12. But it's his background that makes his apostleship so stunning. And I mentioned he's a tax collector. Now, I imagine you don't have a fond feeling toward the IRS, but I hope you don't personally hate the workers there, like they're just doing their job. It's nothing personal. But not so with tax collectors in ancient Judea. Give you the quick rundown here. Israel at the time was under Roman rule, and they were just forced to pay taxes to Rome. And direct taxes, or tributa, were were collected by the governors of each province. This was a tax on, on the agricultural produce of the land, and it's mostly for landowners. But then there is an indirect tax, like the poll tax. That's for everybody, and that's just to collect revenue. That, that's all it is. It's just money from the people to run the government. And there's a class called the publicani, and they were charged with collecting these taxes. Now, in the West, close to Rome, the, the publicani, you might know them in the New Testament as publicans, not republicans, but just publicans. They were usually Roman knights, but in the East, far away from Rome, they were contractors. And so usually local men of wealth or prestige in a town, they would buy from Rome the rights to collect the taxes. They would pay a, a flat fee to collect taxes. They would, they would give Rome a certain amount. But then everything they collected above and beyond was pure profit. And so you can imagine that led to a lot of excess taxes and corruption as these local tax collectors were selfishly motivated to squeeze people for as much as they could, because that, that's just all profit. Now, the publicani in a region, they would employ many other tax collectors. Uh, in the Greek, telones is the work for, word for this. It, these are like the local guys who do the, the dirty work of collecting. And these were usually locals. So in Judea, there would have been many Jews who did the work of actually collecting the taxes. Zacchaeus was one of those tax collectors, and so was Matthew. And you can also probably imagine that these Jewish tax collectors were seen as like vile traitors by their fellow Jews. The Jews hated their oppressive overlords, the Romans. They resented paying taxes to this pagan empire. And so, a Jewish tax collector was seen as just robbing his own people. Tax collectors were lumped with the worst members of society, meaning murderers, robbers, prostitutes, and Gentiles. The religious leaders permitted Jews to lie to tax collectors if necessary. You get a pass. They were as repulsive as lepers in society, and that's why many were just excluded from the synagogue. Tax collectors were just ostracized in the social and religious life of Israel. But again, that's what makes Matthew's call and his inclusion among the 12 disciples so impactful. 
It, it was unheard of for a rabbi to associate with a tax collector. I told you to go to Matthew 1. Actually, just go to Matthew 9. We'll come back to chapter 1. But Matthew chapter 9, let's read Matthew's own account of his calling. It's very short. It's just one verse. But we see Matthew's calling in, in his own words. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, Mark and Luke record the same event. But remember, from different perspective, they actually help add some details. This is taking place by the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. Capernaum was the home base of Jesus in the north. It's also where Matthew was from. Matthew's sitting in a tax booth, which means he's probably been charged with collecting taxes on goods passing on the road from Damascus to the Mediterranean Sea. He's working for Herod and Tippus. What's also interesting is that in both Mark and Luke's account, this guy's not named Matthew. His name is Levi. That was Matthew's original name. But after following Jesus, his name changed to Matthew, much like Simon became Peter. Now, whether he chose his own new name or Jesus chose it for him, we we don't really know. But Matthew in Hebrew means gift of God. No doubt Matthew saw the calling of Jesus on his life as a gift of God. This account of Matthew's calling is very short, but still there's enough in here to tell that this was a genuine radical conversion. Matthew had surely already heard of Jesus. Jesus had been working wonders in Capernaum, healing everybody. Everybody knew Jesus at that point. And then when Matthew sees Jesus that day on the road coming to him, there's a throng of people following him because he had just done some more healing. But never did Matthew expect that this rabbi, this man of God, would come and talk to him in the tax collector's booth. And never did Matthew expect Jesus to then invite him to follow him. When that call went forth, Matthew knew what it meant. He already, Jesus already had disciples. He knew what that call meant to follow me. Matthew doesn't ask to settle his affairs. He does not say, let let me finish things up here. He does not try to hold on to his past. No, rather as Luke 5.28 adds, it says of Matthew, when Jesus called him, he left everything behind, got up, and began to follow him. Matthew just left his old life in the dust at that point. I think it's safe to postulate that the guilt was probably already stirring in Matthew's heart. Probably just like Zacchaeus. He knew in his heart, he's robbing his own people. He was extorting his own people, robbing from the poor to fill his own pockets. He knew he was doing wrong. But these tax collectors, even if they felt guilty, had nowhere to turn. The Jews gave them no room for repentance. You can't repent. You're you're out no matter what. But here, Jesus beckoned him with acceptance. But Matthew knew that this acceptance also meant death to his old life. He could not come and follow Jesus and be the same. He had to to die to his old life. But he was ready and willing to do so. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record how right after Matthew's calling, Jesus attends this like, like dinner party. And in attendance are a bunch of tax collectors and sinners, as it says. But, you know, Luke actually makes clear, Matthew was hosting this party. I'll just read Luke 5.29. It says, and Levi, right after his calling, Levi gave a big reception for Jesus in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. You realize, it's almost sad, but these were the only people Matthew knew. These were his only friends, just fellow outcasts, fellow tax collectors. But as he leaves the world of tax collecting behind, as he's found the gift of, of God in Christ, you just get the sense that he wants these, his other friends to, to, to get the same thing, to, to receive the same gift. He wants them to encounter this Jesus. So he's like, I'm going to host a party. I'm just going to invite these guys. Jesus, come talk to them. He wants them to know Christ. And that Jesus did not come for the righteous. He came for the sinner. Jesus himself says as much later on at that event. 
Just keep reading in Matthew's account. This is the same time. Matthew 9 verse 10 right after. Talks about the same thing. It says, then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew knew when Jesus called him, he wasn't righteous. He was a sinner. But he knew what this calling meant. This was a call uh, of, of change. Matthew himself was a changed man, a true disciple. He was humbled by the Lord calling him, and and he retained that humility. You can tell he never refers to himself in the first person in his gospel. Whenever he talks about Matthew, he always adds this little phrase, Matthew, the tax collector. Mark and Luke never do that. Only Matthew. It's like he wants his sordid past remembered and known so that people might know these are exactly the types of people for whom Jesus came. This is Matthew, the author. Second, Matthew's arrangement. Matthew's author, Matthew's arrangement. Secondly, just trying to help you get acquainted with this gospel. And one thing you should know is how highly structured Matthew is. The way Matthew arranges his material on the words and works of Jesus is very deliberate. It's not a biography of Jesus, as we mentioned. This is a message of good news. And accordingly, Matthew is not strictly chronological. He keeps like the basic timeline of Christ's life, but he's, he's thematically giving a message here. And more specifically, Matthew organizes his testimony of Jesus around these five sections, these five main sections. You got a little prologue in the beginning on the birth of Jesus, the beginning of his ministry. You have an epilogue at the end of the Great Commission, but in between, it's all these five sections. You have five major discourses of Jesus, like a sermon, like a message, five messages, and then it's followed by five blocks of narrative or, or some storytelling. So you have the words of Jesus and then the works of Jesus, and then some more words of Jesus And then some more works of Jesus. Just like that. Five times. Now the other gospels have a lot of the same narrative as Matthew. Some of the same events like the feeding of the 5,000. Healing the blind. Curing the leper. So on. But Matthew really stands out as unique with these five discourses. These five messages Jesus preached that are recorded in full. This is like the unabridged version of Christ's teaching. Like, for example, Luke has Sermon on the Mount, but it's like the mini version. A quick overview, though, on these five messages, discourses. Discourse one is the Sermon on the Mount, chapters five through seven, also known as the greatest sermon ever preached. That's in Matthew. Discourse two is chapter 10. It's on true discipleship. This is one of the single most instructive chapters in the whole Bible on what it really means to follow Jesus. Discourse 3, chapter 13, the parables of the kingdom. You just get a tidal wave of parables explaining the mysteries of the coming kingdom. Discourse 4, chapter 18 is all about kingdom relations. The church still today heavily relies on Matthew 18 for knowing how we are to relate to one another in the church. And then lastly, Discourse 5, the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. Normally you think you want to learn about end times, what is yet to come. You think of the book of Revelation, but do you want to hear that from Christ's own mouth, his teaching? Well, you go to Matthew 24 and 25 and the Olivet Discourse. This is probably why I've appreciated Matthew so much over the years, because in Matthew, not only do you see the Savior in action, but you hear the Savior's voice really more than anywhere else. Thirdly, now, Matthew's audience and aim. This is a two for one. Matthew's audience and aim. And to whom is Matthew writing this account? First, just note, he's not writing to anyone specific. 
like the epistles, or rather unlike the epistles, this is not written to a congregation, to a church, to a, a specific locale. No, no addressee at all, actually. But it's not hard to see that Matthew clearly has a Jewish audience in mind. And the Jewish flavor of Matthew has been recognized from the beginning. And this, this stands out in many ways. And for one, Matthew heavily relies on the Old Testament. There's some 40 formal quotes of the Old Testament in Matthew and then many more allusions. Matthew is expecting this to, to say something to his Hebrew audience. Also, Mark, for example, was written to a Gentile audience. And that's why Mark always explains Jewish customs, like the hand washing. He explains that because his Roman audience have no idea what that means. Matthew never explains Jewish customs because he knows they'll know exactly what that means. And while the other gospels speak of the kingdom of God, Matthew mostly calls it the kingdom of heaven. No difference between the two. It just probably reflects Matthew being sensible to his audience as Jews were reluctant to speak the name of God. We could go on. Only in Matthew is Jerusalem called the holy city. Only in Matthew do we find Jesus say he came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Only in Matthew does Jesus say he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Matthew's taking great pains to show that the words and works of Jesus did not present a discontinuity with the Jewish Old Testament expectation of the Messiah. Jesus did not make a breach in the law of God or the promise of God. To the contrary, he came in perfect fulfillment of everything God said. If you only had eyes to see, he's the answer to Old Testament promise. And that's what Matthew shows. Now, along these lines, Matthew, by the time he's writing, probably the, the, the mid-A.D. 60s, there are some Jews who had come to believe in Jesus. But by and large, the nation was still unbelieving. And you can tell Matthew hopes to change that. He's trying to show from the very ver- first verse to his Hebrew brethren that, that this Jesus really is their Messiah. You know, back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The, the first verse, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, is the Messiah of promise. We'll look at that more next week. So I think Matthew clearly has his Jewish kinsman in mind. You get the feeling like he's like the Apostle Paul in Romans. He just, he's desperate for the salvation of his kinsman. But don't get the mistaken impression that, that Matthew will whitewash this account of Jesus to kind of soften the sharp edges of Jesus, to lower the bar, make it easier for his fellow Jews to believe in him. No. No, the stumbling block of the cross is not removed and, and, and the hard sayings of Jesus are not softened. To the contrary, in Matthew, they're a bit harder and stronger and sharper. They're more offensive. Matthew's record pulls no punches. In fact, Matthew, more than the other gospels, is an indictment on Israel for missing, rejecting, and crucifying their own Messiah. A big turning point comes in chapter 12. Where the religious leaders commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Where they accuse Jesus. They, they attribute his divine works to the power of Satan. They have rejected his offer of the kingdom. And so it will be taken away from them. And thereafter in Matthew we see Jesus level these stunning rebukes to the religious leaders. It is heavier in Matthew than anywhere else. In fact it culminates in chapter 23. It's just a whole chapter That records Jesus pronouncing woes of damnation on the religious leaders of Israel. Because they were total hypocrites. He says they're the blind leading the blind into hell. And no one following their ways can enter this kingdom. New wine can't fit into old wineskins. You you have to leave behind their cold dead religion. If you're to follow him. And Matthew wants his fellow Jews to come to Jesus, but they have to come the only way. It's through the door of faith alone in this Christ. Now let's take it one step further because Matthew also highlights that that this narrow door of salvation is not just for Israel, but it's been open to all the nations. 
Then again, Matthew seems to echo what Paul says in Romans 11, that the unbelief of Israel has resulted in riches for the Gentiles. That the nation was hardened in unbelief, but in God's plan, that, that simply meant that the door of salvation would swing wide open for the nations. It's not forever, like Paul clarifies Romans eleven twenty five. He says a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. There will be a future day of restoration for national Israel. But in this age, it's only going to be a small remnant of, of believing true Israel in the church. But instead, the church of Christ would largely be filled with Gentiles. This is simply God's plan. And, and Matthew wants his believing Jewish audience to know this as well. That they must not shun Gentile inclusion in the church. Back then, as you might know, that was a big deal. You know, despite clearly having a distinct Hebrew flavor, Matthew goes beyond the other Gospels in showing the Gentile inclusion in the people of God. In Matthew, we find the strongest indictments of Jewish unbelief. And they're contrasted with the strongest affirmations of Gentile belief. The genealogy of Jesus includes four women Three of them were Gentiles. And the birth of the Messiah was unnoticed by the Jewish leaders. But these Gentile magi from the east are the ones to actually worship him. And then several times we hear Jesus himself verbalize that God's going to take away the place of Israel in the kingdom and give it to others. Go to Matthew 8, for example, look at verses 11 and 12. Matthew 8, 11, in rebuke to them, he says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Likewise, Matthew 21, verse 43, Jesus says, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruit of it. And talking to the religious leaders. Jesus is the savior of the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And Matthew, in a way, explains why the age of the church would focus more on the nations. Now, speaking of the church, Matthew is the only gospel to mention the word church twice. This anticipates that the shift to the new covenant people of God. Matthew looks forward to a new age inaugurated by Christ's blood. Where the people of God are, are restructured and centered around not 12 tribes, but 12 apostles and a new covenant. Now, this church is not just for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but it's for all the nations. And this is why it's no accident at all that Matthew finishes his gospel with what? Matthew 28. Go to the last verses. And Matthew puts this last for a reason. He could have gone on to include the ascension. He could have said something else, but he finishes his message with a great commission. He's telling you something. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. For lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, the more you study Matthew, the more you see what he's trying to do regarding unbelieving Jews. He wants to convince them that this Jesus really is their long awaited Messiah, that they might reject him no longer, but believe and regarding believing Jews and the rest of the church. He wants to encourage them in the faith, show them the meaning of, of true discipleship and make sure that they know that this, this Jesus is the savior of the world. All so that they might then take this record, this gospel to the nations. Go now tell other people about this. That's why Matthew is writing. And with this in mind, it's a natural place to include number four, Matthew's argument. Matthew's argument. Now, I've already highlighted Matthew's aim, but I can show you a little more precisely how he builds this argument. What he's trying to say here. Again, far from being a, just a historical record, you know, these gospels are, are messages. They have a purpose, an agenda. 
They're recording true history. It's all true. But in each author, based on what they include, what they don't include, what they emphasize, how they arrange their material, they're, they're giving a message. They're making an argument to teach you something under God's inspiration. So what is Matthew's argument? What's his perspective on the good news of Jesus? As we said before, Matthew is presenting Jesus as the king, the sovereign Messiah king. He's the king of the Jews, but he's also the king of kings. And fitting Matthew's presentation of Jesus as king, Matthew has the most to say about the kingdom. And kingdom is a huge theme here, that that the term kingdom shows up 51 times in Matthew. That's double any other gospel. This is critical to understand. The kingdom of God. It's one of, if not the grandest themes of the whole Bible. It's what the message of the Bible is about. The kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? The simplest version is just God's rule over his creation. That's it. This is God's rule over his creation. God's the only sovereign. He's the only real king. But ever since the fall... His will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven. There's sin. There's rebellion. That's not his will. Of course, he's allowing that to happen in his greater will for his greater purposes. But nonetheless, God's domain on earth has has been subverted. His domain, though, will be restored on the earth. That sin, Satan, death itself will be crushed. Their reign will will end and God will restore his reign over all the heavens and the earth. And all this is going to happen through one person. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. You got to know the concept of the kingdom. Then you can know Christ's relationship to it. He's the king of the whole thing. He's the king of the kingdom. And more specifically, Matthew, he wants to show us Jesus as king. His argument is that Jesus is the king revealed, the king rejected, and the king returning. The king revealed, the king rejected, the king returning. Let me take you through that real quick. And first, you find in Matthew, the king revealed. Like we saw from the very beginning, Matthew opens up with this genealogy of Jesus. He does that to trace his royal ancestry to the, the forefathers of the faith, Abraham and David. Matthew is putting Jesus directly in line with all of the promises of God through those men. And Jesus, born in humble circumstances, not quite what you'd expect of a king, but at the same time, these wise men from the east come and worship him as king of the Jews. Then you get to John the Baptist, this forerunner. He comes to make ready the way of the Lord. He's preaching what? Repent. The kingdom is at hand, it's, it's close, it's near. And we find that it's near in the king, the person of Jesus. From there, we finally hear in Matthew's gospel from Christ himself, his first real discourse is the Sermon on the Mount, where Christ himself paints the picture of kingdom righteousness. Jesus is the king. And in him, the true nature of the kingdom is revealed. He uses parables to tell us the mysteries of the kingdom. He uses prophecy to tell us the future of the kingdom. He uses miracles to show us the power of the kingdom, God's reign. Just think about everything wrong with this world. All part of the curse, all consequence of the curse. And Jesus shows, and Matthew shows, this king can fix it. From sickness to disease, from blindness to demon possession, from storms to famine, from sin to death itself, this king can correct this world. And that power, though, will be put on display, not as the world expects, because this king does not come bearing a sword to conquer. No, he comes bearing a cross to suffer. And the final week of Jesus begins with his royal entrance to the holy city, Jerusalem. Realize as the Messiah, that's his city. But the citizens of that city will go on to reject him. And so the king goes silently 
to the cross to lay down his life. But this is no defeat, though. This is victory as he rises from the dead. And that's why Matthew includes in Jesus these final words. We skipped verse 18 of Matthew 28. But Christ says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is the king revealed. But as obviously made clear in his death, you, you also have the king rejected. Matthew wants you to see this king was rejected. This is a shocking twist that no one saw coming, that his own people would be the ones to totally miss him, turn against him, then crucify him. Matthew's the only gospel that refers to Jesus as the king of the Jews before the cross, but not by his own people. The Jews never recognized him as their king. You know, from birth, it was another king, Herod. He wanted to kill Jesus. He was facing opposition to his kingship from the womb. And then as soon as Jesus enters the ministry, what happens? First thing, satanic opposition. More opposition to his kingship. He faces the devil in the wilderness and he tempts Jesus. Understand the real nature of the temptation. He's offering Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, but without a cross. You don't need a cross. Just worship me. I'll give you the kingdoms. And Jesus, of course, resisted because it was actually God's will for this king to go to the cross. But as time goes on, though he's working wonders, he's showing the power of the kingdom. The religious leaders of Israel are not accepting him. To the contrary, they they hate him. How could this be? Well, it's because he challenged their hypocrisy. He, He challenged their authority. He condemned their unbelief. Tension builds throughout the first half of Matthew's gospel. Opposition to the king. Like I said before, it culminates in Matthew 12 with this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They attribute the divine power of Jesus to the devil. They think he's not spirit-possessed, but devil-possessed. The Jewish leaders, that just shows they had reached already a full state of hardness of heart. And from that point on, they would have killed him if they had the opportunity. Jesus, therefore, at that point on, will speak to them only in parables, precisely so that they will not understand what he's saying as a judgment on them. They've rejected the king, and the king has rejected them. You know, later on, turn to Matthew 23. Jesus comes to the holy city of Jerusalem as, as his time comes, and, and he laments over it. They've rejected the king. What does he say in return? Matthew 23:37. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. You were unwilling. And behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And not long after this, the leaders of the city would indeed kill their king. In mockery, they'd hang a sign over his cross. And the sign read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. If only they knew that were true. But thankfully, rejection is not the last word in Matthew's gospel. He shows us the king revealed and the king rejected. But this king is also returning, the king returning. Jesus, he's not only a king. He's also a prophet. And this this prophet, priest, king speaks of a time when he will return. And the day is coming when he will finally bring the kingdom rule of God to earth. And Matthew records the greatest oracle that Christ himself gave about that future time, where he speaks of a, a second coming of this Messiah King. Go, go to Matthew 24 and look at verse 30. It's part of that all of it discourse. He says, and then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. On that day, the king will bear a sword. And he alone will put an end to the rule of sin and Satan on the earth. He will separate. He will judge. Look at chapter 25, verse 31, for example. 
Speaking of this, this judgment at his return, he says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. As verse 46 goes on to say, that those who rejected Jesus will go away to, Jesus says, eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. This king will not be rejected forever. The day is coming when he will return, and on that day, every knee will bow. One way or another, every knee will bow and finally recognize he really is the king. He's not just king of the Jews. He's king of kings. And that means he's the one to whom all other kings give an account. All will be made to answer to him and give an account on that day. This is the, the argument of Matthew. It kind of sounds like Matthew's argument demands a response. You can't just do nothing with this, right? And indeed, we can end here. Matthew's application, number five. Matthew's application, when you consider the argument of Matthew, it does demand some response from those who read this book. From all people, Jew and Gentile, believer and unbeliever, you have to respond. No response is still a response. You got to do something. I think Jesus summed up this response best back in Matthew 24, verse 44. Just in general, he says this for verse 44, speaking of his coming. For this reason, you also must be ready. You must be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. You must be ready for this judgment. There's only one way to be ready. It's, it's by faith in him, by receiving him, by, by believing him. What you do with Jesus, how you respond to him, it's the most important decision you will make in your life. Will you be like the religious leaders, completely rejecting Jesus in the hardness of your heart? Will you be like the crowds? You show a passing fascination with Jesus, but you stop short of giving your life to him. Or will you be like the true disciples who are willing to, to deny self, pick up their cross, and, and follow him. We'd be like Matthew, who just will leave everything behind to follow him. The way of the disciple is the only way to eternal life. Matthew's gospel shows us that way. So the first and foremost application to this message of good news is, is obvious. It's simple. It's just you believe. You must believe. Believe today. Like Matthew himself, you have to humble yourself, repent, turn to Christ as your only Savior. Jesus came to save sinners. He won't turn you away no matter what you've done, how bad you are. So long as you come to him with this humble, glad, willing submission. You know, it's not Matthew, but it's Luke who records this parable. It shows a contrast between two men. It's a Pharisee and a tax collector. I'm just going to read it for you, but what better picture is there of this response of true salvation? Luke 18, 9 through 14. But just listen. This is Christ giving a parable. Luke 18, 9, it says, And he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. He says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. I just wonder if Jesus maybe had Matthew in mind. We could never tell. But it's a Pharisee and a tax collector. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get, trusting in himself that he was righteous. But verse 13, the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, just saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You find the only way up is down. You must humble yourself before your God. Stop trusting yourself. Stop living for yourself. Recognize your king. He's, he's come to you. He's been revealed. Don't reject him. He's returning and believe in him today. 
And for those of you who have done so, you have received this good news that Matthew presents. You have believed in Christ as your king. Well, now what you need to do is just take this good news and tell other people. That's what you have to do. That's how you respond to Matthew's message. You can't be silent. This king leaves to you, disciple, his promise. He says, he will be with you even to the end of the age. And then he leaves to you, disciple, his commission. Go therefore to all the nations, make disciples. And one thing you can't do with Matthews is nothing. You can't remain silent. You have to speak. You have to take this good news and, and tell others to spread this gospel. This is literally just the introduction to Matthew's gospel. We've only scratched the surface of what's in here, but already I hope you can appreciate that this is a rich part of God's word. And it'd be far better if the Lord would just return now and we could see him face to face. But as long as he tarries, we will happily settle with getting to know him and see him, hear him, and follow him in Matthew's gospel. And so until next time, let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we, we, we praise you and, and cherish you for your word, which we also cherish. Lord, we don't, we don't worship the Bible, but we need it because we need to worship the God revealed in it, the Savior revealed in it. It gives us your mind, your will, and, and it shows us the God we worship and his son, Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the King, the long-awaited one finally revealed. We thank you for sending the Messiah. You, you didn't have to. You could have easily left us in judgment and you would have been only just but in your great mercy, because of the love with which you loved us, you sent him to, to serve us. Lord, we also confess we, we would have rejected Jesus just as much as the Jews. In fact, in our life, we, we already have. We've all been rejectors of this one. Lord, we pray you work in our hearts and the hearts of some here who might still be rejecting him in their heart of hearts. You can break the heart of stone. You can humble us, Lord. Do that now. Open our eyes to see, even from Matthew of who this Jesus really is, what he really did. And we have only one hope in the response, and that's to just cling to him, to cry out, to beat our breasts, and say, have mercy on us, Lord. We're sinners too. But Jesus came, not for the righteous, but for sinners. We find hope in that. The only hope we need is so may we turn to him. And then convict us, Lord, to, to not be silent. We must speak as our culture turns, as we are under oppression ourselves, Our response is is not fighting back. We don't bear the sword. We just bear the gospel. And we preach it and minister to others that they might come and see uh, the the servant, the uh, Savior, the King who has come. Be with your people as we seek and serve you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.